0: Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. Sorry for the difficulty for some of you getting here. Our parking lot is disturbed because we're creating more parking. God has given us favor with the township. We have a little bit of window to get it through. I just want everybody to know you can park in the Endo facilities next door. There's an event sign there, event parking, and you just walk over the bridge. So if you want to use that in the coming weeks, you're free to use it. Uh, The clips you just saw on the screen, I think many of you know, are from the critically acclaimed film that came out last year called Selma. And my family and I actually went on the Martin Luther King holiday to see the film. It was extraordinary. And it really details the height of the civil rights movement in our country in the early 1960s, where you just saw thousands of people, black and white, from all over America, crossed over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, many of them Christians, many of them church leaders, uh, to march for voting rights for black citizens in this country. The reason why they were there is they were summoned to Selma by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, After the terrible massacres that happened on that bridge just two weeks prior that we call today Bloody Sunday where black people were beaten and one person actually gave their life. To me it was the height of Dr. Martin Luther King's leadership and I've studied his leadership. I've read two biographies of his life. I've seen documentaries and movies. Uh, He's one of my heroes and the people that I love. But The reason I look at this as the height of his leadership is because he realized for his dream to come true, he'd have to bring a coalition of people together. That's what leaders do. They never do it on their own. And we all know his dream, right? That one day his four children would not be judged by their color, but by the content of their character. Tomorrow, our nation honors Dr. King on a holiday in his name that he rightfully deserves. He's one of the greatest leaders our nation has ever produced. Uh, One historian says that he is a founding father. In my humble opinion, if we were to add a fifth face to Mount Rushmore, it would be his. Now, is our country where it needs to be uh, when we talk about a racial divide or equality? Certainly not. But we're going to leave that argument and that discussion for another day, and we really need that discussion, and we'll have it. But the reason we're talking about Dr. King on this weekend where we celebrate his life is because we're in a series called Life's Necessary Ingredients. In my 30-some years of reading the Bible and over 100 biographies, I've identified five character traits that all great men and women of God possess. They're all on the stage here. Purpose, intimacy, courage, optimism, and resiliency. No one had more courage than Dr. Martin Luther King. You saw him stand down a president. George Wallace, who was the governor of Alabama. White racism in the South. Even members of his own party who wanted to abandon the idea of peaceful resistance and take another route. The Bible repeats this phrase over and over again, be of good courage. Anybody know why? Because we need it. You can't walk the Christian life without courage. And you'll find out more about that as we continue. Uh, There's a little-known fact about Dr. King that after the civil rights advancements in 1964 and the March on Washington, the great I Have a Dream speech, uh, he fell into a deep depression. He was exhausted. Many leaders, after a triumph, uh, lose their way a little bit. He saw that there was still a long road ahead. Andrew Young, who was his closest confidant who became the mayor of Atlanta, sustained him through this time, speaking words of encouragement mainly through the Bible. And Dr. King went on not only to continue to lead that civil rights movement, but did what few leaders are willing to do, gave his life for the cause and for the freedoms that many have today. This weekend, as we, doc, as we honor Dr. Martin Luther King and as we talk about courage, I prayed to God, God, how do we approach this part of the series? And as I was praying about it, I was at a function in upstate Pennsylvania where I saw Chief Kelvin Cochran former Atlanta fire chief speak, and God told me this is the message that Calvary Chapel needs to hear on this day. We called Chief Cochran. He agreed to come. I'm not going to give you a lengthy introduction because he's going to tell his story of courage and what God has done in his life. It is so inspiring, and I want you to give a warm welcome to Chief Kelvin Cochran.
1: Well, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. To, to Pastor Bob and to the Calvary Chapel Church family, good morning. And I bring you greetings from the Elizabeth Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and our Pastor Craig L. Oliver, Sr., and I greet you on behalf of the Cochran family, my wife, Carolyn, and our three children, Tiffany, Kelton, and Camille, and our precious little granddaughter, Tylen, who calls me Pawpaw. <laughs> it's a blessing to be here this, with you this morning to share on this day uh, at the beginning of a series of messages to encourage you in your faith uh, and to cut straight to the message. If you would join me by standing, I want to share a scripture that's foundational to the message Uh, It comes from the book of first Peter, chapter four, verses 12 through 14. Uh, You can follow along with me if you have your Bible In first Peter, chapter four, verses 12 through 14. You'll find the words, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. But on your part, he is glorified. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Dear God, our Heavenly Father, how we praise you and thank you for another day. And we thank you that you've blessed us and given us a heart and mind to come to Calvary Chapel Church today. And Father, we praise you for your presence that has been ushered in by the wonderful praise and worship team and the beautiful songs that have been sang. We sense your presence that is full in this place. Thank you for blessing us to be citizens of the United States of America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And now, God, it is time for me to share the words that you have given me to say. And as I stand before my brothers and sisters this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And let them see you in me and let them hear you when I speak. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, there is an ever-increasing attack an assault and threat to freedom of religion and freedom of speech in our beloved United States of America. My story is one of many where a government entity with the support of special interest groups, have worked together to impose adverse consequences on another American for publicly proclaiming a position based upon biblical truth that is not consistent with popular culture or the shifting pluralisms of political correctness. There is, as such, a significant need for the body of Christ to rise to unprecedented levels of unity and solidarity with regard to religious liberty. Our divisions in the body of Christ along denominations and race and political party lines and other secular standards have diluted the power of our collective influence as believers. And as such, we have seen of continual moral decay from the values, the Judeo-Christian values of which our nation was founded. My life uh, as a firefighter is a very public life, but it became more publicized than ever before during the week of Thanksgiving 2014 due to my 30-day suspension without pay and subsequent termination from employment After 34 years of faithful service in the fire and emergency services industry, seven of those years served as fire chief of the city of Atlanta, a city that I I still call home, that I live in and that I love. The adverse consequences came upon me at the hand of the Honorable Mayor Kasim Reed, whom I still respect in the Lord. As I reflected back on what has occurred in my life, uh, this all started as a result of a book that I had written for a Christian men Bible study with a very familiar title, Who Told You That You Were Naked? The question God asked Adam in the garden. When I look back the weeks that followed my termination, I began to realize that God had been preparing me for this fiery trial my entire life. And I came to the staunch realization that the Christian walk of faith is comprised of a series of level plains, mountain climbs, and valleys. And that sufferings are an inherent and even necessary component of fulfilling God's purpose for our lives. Sufferings are a necessary component of fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. When I was serving as fire chief in Shreveport, Louisiana, in the early 2000s, I was experiencing a series of personal and professional challenges at that time. Sometimes sufferings come sequentially. You go through a suffering, have a period of peace, and then you enter into another at some point. But sometimes brothers and sisters, they come simultaneously. We experience more than one at the same time. That's what I was going through. And God led me to do a word study on the word sufferings, and when I searched sufferings in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I found out that when we see words in scriptures like afflictions, trials, tribulation, tests, trouble, persecution, temptation, and chastisement, they all fall under the primary heading of sufferings. And so I began to look at people in the Bible that went through sufferings, and I determined very quickly that there are two categories of sufferings. Essentially, there are self-inflicted sufferings. There are some sufferings, brothers and sisters, we bring upon ourselves. And then there's another category of God-allowed sufferings sufferings we experience that has nothing to do with what we've done, but has everything to do with what God wants to do in and through our lives. Throughout our lives, we experience one form of suffering or another, trials, tribulations, tests, persecution, Temptation, trouble, chastisement. But this time, in my particular situation, I got to tell you that most of the sufferings that I've experienced fall in the self-inflicted suffering category. Most of the ones I've gone through, I've brought them on myself. Anybody in here with me know what that's like? Thank you very much for joining me and sharing that testimony. There were times in my life when I was doing things that I knew God did not want me to do, or he told me to do something that I chose not to do. And because he's such a good, good father, it's just who he is, like uh, the song says, he brought sufferings into my life to bring me back in alignment with his perfect will and plan for my life. There were periods in my life, mostly in my 20s, where I thought that my life, my plan for my life was better than God's plan for my life. I thought the pleasures of the world were greater than the pleasures that the Bible says are at God's right hand. So I pursued my own way rather than pursuing his way. And he saw that the way I was going was going to lead me away from his divine appointments in life. And so he used sufferings to bring me back in alignment as a loving father would do. It's because of sufferings that I've matured to the point to where as a disciple, I can say what the old people used to say in my church in Shreveport. They used to say things I used to do, I don't do no more. And what I realize is now that I'm one of the old people at my church, (laughs) that the things they used to want to do that was against the will of God, they don't do no more because of the sufferings. Sufferings actually discipline us to give up things in the world that we enjoy doing but that we know are against the will of God. There were times in my life God would say, Now this is the last time I'm gonna let you get away with that. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, I do it again. Sufferings have a way of stripping off and pruning off bad ways and bad habits and even bad relationships that will keep us from achieving. God's destiny. So I've had my share of self-inflicted sufferings, but this time the suffering is different. What I'm going through this fiery trial is not a self-inflicted suffering. This is a God allowed suffering. And the distinction between the two when you have the courage to stand is because in self-inflicted sufferings, I think one of the reasons why God allowed me to experience so many of them is to be able to know the difference between then and now. Because with self-inflicted suffering, the chastisements, the troubles, the trials and tests I was experiencing, I brought them on myself. And so the consequences I bore them the weight and burden of them because I knew had I been obedient, I wouldn't be going through what I was going through. So there was a weight and a burden associated with consequences of self-inflicted suffering. That is not the case with God-allowed sufferings. With God-allowed sufferings, God has assured me this has nothing to do with me. I'm not being punished for stuff that I did that he told me not to do. And I'm not being punished for not doing things that he told me to do. This is all about him. And he's carrying the weight. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. So realizing that I'm going through a God allowed suffering brings on with it a peace about it because it's all about God. And we have been assured in Scripture of plenty of examples of how God works and God-allowed suffering situations. We've all heard the story of Job, God-allowed suffering. We know the story of Esther, a God-allowed suffering. We know about Joseph's life, God-allowed sufferings. We know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God-allowed sufferings. We know about Daniel, another God-allowed suffering. And praise be unto God, we know about Jesus Christ, the ultimate example and testimony of God-allowed sufferings and the associated outcomes of God-allowed sufferings. We have the Holy Bible filled with examples of God-allowed sufferings. That is why, brothers and sisters, in that scripture that you heard me share, We can rejoice and be exceedingly glad with great joy because we know outcome after outcome how God works with God allowed sufferings. And so there are five things I want to share with you very quickly about what we should be inspired by and encouraged by, even emboldened by when our opportunity comes to stand. Not if it comes, when it comes. The first lesson, brothers and sisters, is that when you're going through sufferings, it's important to realize that God has prepared us for it. God always prepares his children for sufferings. He always does. The second lesson is the toughest lesson, and that is there are worldly consequences for standing for biblical truths and for standing for Jesus Christ, there are worldly consequences. A little over a year ago in Egypt, 25 Christian men were captured by ISIS and they were given the death threat of a beheading lest they reject their faith in Jesus Christ. They did not reject their faith in Jesus Christ and their heads were cut off. A few months later in villages in Afghanistan a radical group of Muslims believed to be a part of the Taliban, began to search households where Christian families were known to live. When they found a Christian family, they gathered the family up in the same room and they'd tell the mom and dad, lest they reject their faith in Christ, they were going to kill their children. Many of those mothers and fathers did not reject their faith in Christ and their precious children were killed right in front of them few months after that another radical group of Islamists Islamists went to a college campus in North Africa where Muslim and Christian students were known to attend they separated the Muslim students from the Christian students and they told the Christian students lest you reject your faith in Christ we're going to kill you right here on the spot 125 college kids in Africa, Christians, refused to reject their faith in Christ and they were gunned down on the spot. There are worldly consequences for standing for biblical truth. In our beloved United States of America, we're not close to experiencing those kinds of consequences. In our generation... Lest we, as a body of believers, stay divided, passive, and silent. And I'm going to repeat that part. We will not see those kinds of consequences in our generation, baby boomers. Lest we remain silent, divided, and passive. But should we remain divided, silent, and passive, our children and our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren could very well see the day where those are the consequences for standing on biblical truth because there are worldly consequences. So what are the consequences that we are bowing down to in our country? Some Christian Americans won't take courage and they are bowing down to popular culture and political correctness against scripture because they don't want to lose an election. Even though many of them ran touting their faith in Christ and their biblical values, when they came before us, when they reached office, they don't stand on the promises and values that got them elected. And many of them began to buy into the popular culture and the current trends of the culture because they fear losing their election. There are other businessmen and women who won't stand for biblical truth because they don't want to lose a government contract or a business contract. There are couples who are engaged, who at the point, some point in the engagement, find out really about the personality and character of the other person. And listen, they find out that they have different views as it relates to the sanctity of life about biblical family, and about marriage. Yes, we are heterosexuals, but one or the other believe that there is a a government matrimony beyond the holy matrimony. However, it's not enough because I fear losing this person, and so because I don't want to lose them, I'll carry on with the relationship and with the marriage because I don't want to lose them. There are even situations in our young children, and even as elementary schools, where children are losing friends because when they get in conversations about mamas and daddies and they speak their truth and conviction about biblical moms and dads being a man and a woman, they lose friends. They get scolded by their teachers. And in some cases, their parents are called to school and are scolded by principals because their children are speaking biblical truth. There are worldly consequences for standing for biblical truth today. My life is a testimony of it. I lost my job. My childhood dream come true, fairy tale career. Lost it. But praise be to God, I still have my head. Still have my wife and children. And even though I lost a wonderful job, God recently gave me another job on the uh, the administrative pastor of my church at Elizabeth Baptist Church. A wonderful job. Love my job. And during the time of unemployment, my family and I, we never lacked anything. Not anything. Not one thing. Because he's faithful. There are worldly consequences. But the third lesson is there are kingdom consequences for standing for biblical truth and standing for Christ. And the kingdom consequences are always greater than the worldly consequences. They always are. But the challenge is, brothers and sisters, we have more believers who have greater fear in the worldly consequences than faith in the kingdom consequences. And that's why, yes, we rejoice when we think about Job and Esther and Joseph and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. We rejoice in those stories. But there are not enough living proof, present day living examples that believers can look at to say, I'm going to stand because I see what God is doing in the life of and then name a person that they know in their life. And I believe that God is warning, like the scripture says, he's searching over the whole earth, looking for a heart that is fully his, so that he may strongly show his support on their behalf. Jesus had a conversation with his disciples once when he said, it's hard for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of God. Peter took issue with that because he was one of the owners of the prosperous Zebedee Fishing Company, and those boys had a lot of money. And so Peter said, wait a minute, we left everything to follow you. And I'll paraphrase. Jesus said, let me set the record straight. You haven't left your job, your husband, your wife, your children, your house, your land, your contracts or anything. You haven't lost anything for my sake that you will not receive in return 100 fold, which means 100 times better than what you lost in this life, in this life with persecution. And then after that, eternal life. What is Jesus saying? Was he exaggerating? No. He's saying, if you lose an election for standing for me, if you are truly a public servant, I'll put you in a public service position where you'll serve a hundred times better than the one that you lost. If you lose your fiance, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, I'll give you a 100 fold boyfriend, a hundredfold girlfriend, a hundred times better than the one you lost. If you lose business standing for me, I'll give you business a hundred times better than the business that you lost. Because I believe there are those of us who will have courage and have greater faith in the kingdom consequences than fear in the worldly consequences. The fourth lesson is that sufferings are always for the glory of God. They always are whether it's God-allowed or self-inflicted sufferings or under the divine, sovereign supervision of God. And he always gets greater glory when we stand. Remember with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they went through Nebuchadnezzar's testimony was, no one can worship any other God but the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God received great glory, Same thing with King Darius after Daniel was brought out from the lion's den. No one can worship any other God but the God of Daniel. They're always for the glory of God. And the last lesson is for the child of God who endures sufferings, our life will go, as Jesus promised, 100-fold higher in blessings if we have the courage to stand 100-fold. So how does God prepare us? Well, my story, my testimony is he prepared me in three primary areas. He prepared me in my childhood upbringing. He prepared me in my career and he prepared me in my family. I was born in 1960 at a hospital called Confederate Memorial Hospital in the South. I'm sure you're not surprised by that, especially in that era. It was a hospital where families that didn't have health care insurance went to have their health care needs met. I had three big brothers at the time that I was born. When my mom and dad took me home from the hospital, we were living in a government project in a neighborhood called Allendale, the poorest neighborhood in Shreveport. Three years later, two girls were added along the way in our family. So there were six of us, four boys and two girls My dad left my mother for another woman. He was an alcoholic, and things got really, really bad for our family. They were bad when dad was with us, but they were a whole lot worse after he left. I describe it this way. We were poor when dad was with us, P-O-O-R, but after he left, we became PO, P-O, because we didn't have enough income to qualify for the whole word anymore. And so my mother, we were evicted from the government projects. We couldn't pay the rent. And so we moved a few blocks over in an alley called Rear Snow Street. Snow Street was the main street. It had shotgun houses on both sides. In the alley was the really bad condition shotgun houses. Uh, So you'll know in the south, shotgun houses are narrow houses. They're not much wider than this aisle, maybe a, a, a little bit bigger than this aisle. It had a front room, middle room, and a back room. And if you open the front door and the back door, you can see straight through the house. The reason why they call them shotgun houses is if you shot a gun in the front door, it'll go right out of the back door without touching anything. And so the four boys, we slept in one bed, uh, and it was a box spring and mattresses stacked on cinder blocks. My two little sisters slept in another little bed, was stacked on cinder blocks, Uh, and held up by boards and when the boys wrestled uh, like Humpty Dumpty's wall the bed came tumbling down because it, it wasn't very stable. We were on welfare and food stamps. My brothers were on the free lunch program in school. We didn't get new clothes every beginning of the school year and at Easter time like the other kids because my mother couldn't afford them. I remember times when we had a lot of groceries at the beginning of the month because the food stamps came and the welfare check came but It wasn't enough. My mother worked at a little dry cleaner in the afternoons, and it still wasn't enough. we run out of stuff at the end of the month, and my mother only had enough money to buy bread, syrup, and mayonnaise. And so we would have toast with burr rabbit syrup for breakfast, and we would have mayonnaise sandwiches for lunch and mayonnaise sandwiches for dinner. We'd drink up all the Kool-Aid and pops. And so if we wanted something sweet to drink, we'd put a couple of teaspoons of sugar in a cold glass of water, and we would have sugar water with our mayonnaise sandwiches until the next welfare check and food stamps came. Poverty was awful. I also realized poverty was awful because sometimes my mother, we'd have the utilities would be cut off. Uh, There was times when my mother would say to us, keep every pot and jug full of water, everything in the house that could hold water. She wanted us to fill it up with water. We realized Eventually, that she had received a cutoff notice from the water company and it was a matter of days before it would be turned off because she knew she didn't have enough money to pay the bill. And so we'd come from outside playing or come home from school, no water coming out of the faucets. And so we'd use the containers to flush the toilet, to bathe with and to cook with. Poverty was terrible. Also realized at that age, at five years old in that alley, that not having a daddy at home was a terrible thing. Most of the children in my neighborhood was raised by a single mom. Most of them didn't have daddies in the home. But at church, at the top of the alley was Galilee Baptist Church, and there were some men there who were family men who had cars. Not all the guys had cars, some of them did. And I would go up the alley early enough on Sundays to see some of the men drive up in their cars. Nice cars. And I would look at them, get out those cars. They'd have on a nice suit and hat. And I would look at those guys and say, man, I sure wish my daddy had a car like that and could dress like that. And then they'd get their wives out of the car. They would be so nicely dressed, much nicer than my mom was able to dress. Nice dress, nice hairdo. And I would say, man, I sure wish my mama could wear dresses like that and could get her hair fixed like that. Then their kids around my age and my little sisters would get out of the car so much nicer dressed than we were, and I would look and say, man, I sure wish we had clothes like that. Those men gave me a picture of what a family was to be like, and I wanted one when I grew up. Grown-ups used to ask us all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I, want, I don't want to be poor. I want a family. And my third thing is I wanted to be a firefighter. One Sunday after church, we were lying on the front room floor of that shotgun house and we heard sirens going through our neighborhood, which happened all the time, but this Sunday it was different. It was louder than we'd ever heard it before, so we sprang to our feet, opened the front door and right in front of our house in the alley was a big red Shreveport Fire Department fire truck. Miss Maddie, who lived across the alley from us, her house was on fire. When I saw those firefighters get off the truck and put on their gear, I looked at my mom and brothers and sisters, and I said, I want to be a fireman when I grow up. So there's three things I thought about. I Don't want to be poor. I want to be a firefighter, and I want a family. The grown-ups in our neighborhood used to ask us all the time, what do you want to be? And I would tell them, just like I just told you, I want to be a firefighter, I want a family, and I don't want to be poor. And this is what they would tell us. In America, all your dreams are going to come true. If you believe in God, if you go to school and get a good education, if you respect grown people and treat other children like you want to be treated, they said, all of your dreams are going to come true. And they were absolutely right. I was raised, brothers and sisters, on faith and patriotism. And in 1981, my childhood dream came true. I became a Shreveport firefighter. So God prepared me through my childhood and he prepared me through my career. This is how. I was determined to continue to apply those same values, faith in God, education, respect authority, this time the rank rank of the Shreveport Fire Department and treat the other firefighters like you want to be treated. And so God used my faith to promote me pretty quickly. In four years, I was a captain. It usually takes 12 to 15. In 10 years, I was an assistant chief. It usually takes about 22 to 25 years. And with 18 years on the department, I became the fire chief of the Shreveport Fire Department, the first African-American fire chief in the history of the Shreveport Fire Department. And I served faithfully there for about eight and a half years. The mayor in Atlanta, Shirley Franklin at the time, called me from Shreveport and recruited me to Atlanta to serve as her fire chief. And I served her faithfully for 20 months. President Obama was elected. There was a vacancy in the Department of Homeland Security in the United States Fire Administration. And he appointed me to the United States Fire Administration as the, U- the U.S. Fire Administrator. The highest... Fire official in the United States of America. (laughs) Listen, that came from an at-risk family, a single mom, bunch of kids in poverty on welfare and food stamps. Came from that by faith and by patriotism. Nowhere but the United States of America and no God but our God could do something like that. And then I was serving there, enjoying that job for 10 months. Atlanta elected a new mayor, Kasim Reed, came to Washington, D.C., and recruited me to come back to serve as his fire chief in Atlanta. And I went back and faithfully served him from June of 2010 until January 6, 2015, when he terminated me for writing, Who Told You That You Were Naked? So where's the suffering in such a childhood, dream come true, fairytale career? Well, when God's favor is on you that much, brothers and sisters, everybody does not celebrate your advancement and promotion when you're going through such a rapid rate. And there are some sufferings along the way in my career based upon the favor of God being upon me that has prepared me for what I'm going through today. Then, the last area, God prepared me through my family. I became a firefighter in 1981, and I became also, at the same time, a very popular guy with girls. I mean, I was very popular, <laughs> which was new to me. I was one of the first African American firefighters, and the whole community was celebrating the fact that we had African American firefighters on the Shreveport Fire Department. Uh, and Uh, The uniform was the X factor for me. Everywhere I went, it just attracted girls like a supernatural magnet. So I wore it all the time. (laughs) And so I collected phone number after phone number. And I was dating like crazy for about four months. And God woke me up one morning and said, this is not the life that I've called you to live. And you need to find yourself a wife. And I took God very seriously. And since we didn't have... ChristianMingle.com and Match.com back in those days. If I, I, I decided I, was, I had to really seek God for a plan. So God put in my heart, don't look for somebody you've never met. Think back over your life of the girls that you've admired the most, whether they were your girlfriend or not, in most cases not because I didn't have what it took. In my day, if you were going to get one of the girls who was on the pep squad or the dance line or a cheerleader, one of those girls... You had to have some very new Levi jeans on or some nice Chuck Taylor, all converse, all stars. And, And you had to have a little bit of definition. I was just a bean pole. And you had to have an Afro and I couldn't grow one. So all the strikes were against me. But when I became a firefighter, the uniform changed everything. And so I began to think back of the girls that I admired in college and none of them start my heart beating or singing. That was God's clue to me that it would be the right one. When I think about one and my heart starts singing and beating real fast, that's the one. It didn't happen when I thought about the college girls. I thought about the high school girls. Nothing happened. Went all the way back and I was thinking about a girl that was my girlfriend in the fourth grade. Her name was Carolyn Marshall and my heart started beating and singing. And so I went to the telephone book and I went in the Marshall section and I said, well, I got to start here in the phone book. I started at the top of the list with the A Marshall and I called the number and I said, my name is Kelvin Cochran and I'm trying to find the girlfriend I had in the fourth grade. (laughs) Her name is Carolyn Marshall. Do you know her? And they said, no. I said, well, do you know anybody that might know her? And they said, no. And I went to the next number and the next number, the next number. My name is Kelvin Cochran. I'm trying to find the girlfriend I had in the fourth grade. Do you know her? (laughs) Nobody admitted they knew who she was or knew anybody that could point me in her direction. So I said, "Okay, plan B, I'm going to drive through the neighborhoods that we used to live in to see, you know, if I could find her. I was hoping that one day I would just catch her walking down the street or maybe I'd see her sitting on the front porch drinking a cold glass of sugar water or maybe I would see someone that knew her and I could ask them about her and they would point me in her direction. After two weeks of that, it came up empty. So I went back to my apartment. I was miserable. And God spoke to me and said, look in the phone book again. And so I looked in the phone books and out of all those marshals, for some reason, I skipped one. And I said, well, I might as well call this one. So I called that number and I was not as enthusiastic this time. I said, My name is Kelvin Cochran. I'm trying to find the girlfriend I had in the fourth grade. Her name is Carolyn Marshall. Do you know her? And the voice said, this is she. And man, I got excited. I said, Carolyn, do you remember me? She says, yeah, I remember you, Kelvin. I said, hey, Carolyn, I'm a firefighter now. I got a good job with good benefits. I've been dating like crazy for the last four months. God woke me up one morning and said, you need to find yourself a wife and you are the chosen one. (laughs) And she said, you must be crazy. I said, no. I said, can I come over to talk to you about it? I want to see you face to face. She says, no, I have a boyfriend and he's on the way over here. And man, I just poured my heart out. I said, Carolyn, you're supposed to be my wife. We're going to have a beautiful life. We're going to have beautiful children, a nice home. You'll never want for anything. And here's a broke firefighter, barely making above minimum wage, telling her she'd never want for anything. But I guess her boyfriend never whispered those sweet nothings in her ear because the next thing she said was, he'll be at work tomorrow night. (laughs) And so I said, well, can I come over tomorrow night? And she says, yes. So I went over the next night, a cold January night. She was still living in a government project with her mom. And uh, she let me in and she made me a cup of hot chocolate sat me down at their little kitchen table. When she came back, I didn't waste any time. I knelt down on one knee and I (laughs) didn't even have a ring. And I asked her to marry me. And the next words out of her mouth was, Mom, you got to come in here. (laughs) You're not going to believe this. I haven't seen this boy in years. I talked to him last night on the phone. I let him come over tonight and he has proposed to marry me. And then I popped the question to her mom. I had to explain to her mom that I wasn't crazy. Well, six months later, we got married. And last June, we celebrated 33 years of holy matrimony. And we have three awesome young adult American kids and a wonderful granddaughter. But here's the preparation part. Listen carefully, singles. When you skip dating and courtship and go right to engagement and marriage, within six months, you're going to experience some sufferings along the way in your marriage. (laughs) But when your marriage is rooted in Christ, he uses those sufferings to build and strengthen your marriage and family. And God prepared my family for what we're going through right now through the sufferings that we went through that drew us near to him and we raised our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so God prepares us through our childhood, He prepares us through our professions, and He prepares us through our family. So, what is this book all about that caused me so much trouble? Three years ago, three and a half years ago now, I was conducting a men's Bible study called The Quest for Authentic Manhood. And when I reached the, the lesson on God's purpose for man and why God created man, I asked the guys are men today still suffering from the consequences of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden? And all of them said, yes, about 12 guys. So I asked each of the 12 to share the reason why they felt that way. And all they talked about were challenges men are still having in our carnal nature. And as they each shared, the question God asked Adam, who told you you were naked, was just repeating itself over and over again in my head. And so after church that day, I went home and began to uh, a quest for why God had that question so strongly in my mind, because I... I was thinking that God must have meant more than who told you that you don't have on any clothes. And so I researched that word naked and the short version is I found out that it meant in that context context, condemned and deprived. And then when I found that out, God said now research clothed, the opposite of naked. And I did that and found out that clothed meant redeemed and restored. And then God said, now look in the garden And see what Adam's solution to his nakedness was. And his solution was fig leaves. And it didn't work. He still felt condemned and deprived. Then when God came along, they hid behind a tree. It still didn't help. They still felt condemned and deprived. When God found out what was going on, he wanted to make things right. So he took an innocent lamb, perfect lamb, because God chose it. It had to be perfect. And he killed it. It shed its blood. And the scripture says he clothed them with coats of skin. He redeemed and restored them. In Galatians 3 and 27, it says those have been baptized in Christ have been clothed with Christ. And God gave me the answer to what I was seeking. He said, Kelvin, the reason why I put you through all this is to tell you this, that I've got too many Christian men, saved men, clothed men. Who are still acting like they are naked. And they cannot walk in the fullness of the promises that I've made for men. Your seed shall be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Never seen the righteous forsaken. Or his many, many promises. He said, they'll never walk in the fullness of my promises. Still walking around acting like they are naked when I brought the Lamb of God to take away all their sins so that they can walk in the fullness of my promises. Too many clothed men acting like naked men. So in the book, I deal with that. And so the part that brought me trouble was one of the greatest challenges those men were talking about that day were challenges men are having with sexual sin. So I talk about that in the book. I went back to the garden. Did God create sex? Yes. Why? For procreation, for procreation. He created it. He created it for procreation. He wanted the earth to be populated with little atoms and ease for generation after, generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. And he wanted it to be done in a way that honors him, which is in holy matrimony. Procreation can only happen. Listen, brothers and sisters. Between a man and a woman. Holy matrimony can only happen if it is a man and a woman. That's what cost me my childhood dream come true fairy tale career. An openly gay council member found out at the hands of a firefighter, what I had written in my book. Took it to him, showed it to him. He was offended. Took it to the mayor and the mayor fired me. So what's a believer to do? Because we are facing those decisions every day. Every day. Will you have more faith in the kingdom consequences than fear in the worldly consequences. Will you have the courage to stand? All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We've got to stand on the promises of God. Here's my position. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. And now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Therefore, I will offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou saidest, seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord shall take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of my enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of my enemies, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. David ends that psalm by encouraging himself. He says, I would have fainted lest I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I paraphrase it this way I would have passed out and given up all hope lest I had believed to see the exceeding great and precious promises of God show up in my circumstances while I was alive to see it. And David ends that song with something I want to encourage you with because all of, all of us are either in a suffering, just come out of one, or we're facing one sometime in the future. Whatever one of those categories you fall in, David says, wait on the Lord and be of good Courage, he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Brothers and sisters, because of the promises of God and his assurances and God-allowed sufferings, my back is not against the wall. I am not at the end of my rope and throwing in the towel is not an option. Could you say that with me? My back is not against the wall. I'm not at the end of my rope. And throwing in the towel is not an option. So here's the last part. My decree. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back no turning back. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer?